0: You ever look around the culture we live in and wonder, how can things change so fast? I, I saw a, a meme this week that, uh, that was talking about Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2 in fact, uh, one of my favorite trilogies of movies, and, uh, and the meme said that do you realize that if you went back from today... As far back into the past as Marty McFly went in Back to Future One, you'd be going to 1991. So now that we all feel ancient, (laughs) culture changes very quickly. Um, I've got four kids living in my house who barely ever, they barely ever go outside except to get to, to and from places like school and church. Um, now, I, I wrote this, and then this week, wouldn't you know it, they started like going on bike rides and like going for runs and like proving me wrong before they knew I was going to say that. But for the most part, they just don't go outside, not like I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, we were constantly outside, especially in the summer, especially when there, there wasn't school. We were outside all the time. And we didn't have phones either. I, I, I know I'm kind of dating myself a little bit here. We didn't have phones uh, when I was a kid to, to carry around with us. And so we didn't know, we didn't know what time it was. Uh, we just knew that we had to go home. When the street lights came on, right? When the street lights came on, that was the indicator that, oh, I'm going to be late. Uh, and then you'd head home when the, when the lights came on. And uh, Nintendo came out when I was three, uh, was, was first released. But I didn't get a Nintendo until I was seven uh, because it takes a long time for a kid to save that kind of money. Uh, so there wasn't a lot to do inside in the summer, and, and even after I got a Nintendo, I mean, let's be honest, there's only, only so much duck hunt a person can play before it gets boring. Like once you're up right at the screen, you know, getting the ducks, it's boring. So you go outside and, and uh, man, we had a big yard uh, growing up. And like when I was older, that th- we, moved, we moved when I was in high school And uh, in high school, we had a pool in our yard, which was awesome. We were always out in the pool. Uh, Before we moved, uh, the house that we had had this big yard, and my dad built this awesome uh, tree house, this awesome fort for us in our backyard. And, man, it had everything. It had swings and monkey bars, and it had a a lower-level sandbox, but then, like, an upper-deck, like, clubhouse with, like, railings and a legitimate roof and every toy weapon, a kid could ever want. I mean, you don't have any idea how many toy weapons we had hanging in that tree house um, because, you know, that's, that's who we were. <laughs> we like to play war a lot. Um, and, and man, as great as it was, as great as that fort was, we were always as kids looking for ways to, to make it better. We were always looking for like creative ways to improve it. Uh, and a lot of times that meant repurposing things for uses other than what they were intended for. Um, my family has a long, a long streak of doing things like this, like we fix things with things that have no business being used to fix that thing. Um, we like to repurpose things and use them creatively, and I did this as a kid. Um, once, I remember, I tried to escape from the fort uh, when you know, the neighborhood enemy showed up to attack, and I thought it would be a good idea to parachute off the roof with a garbage bag. And that wasn't a good idea, for the record. Um, That didn't work very well. I discovered that day that trash bags and parachutes are different; like the physics of them are different. Um, Another time, I decided I was going to make a zip line. I think I've told this story before. I was going to make a zip line from a nearby tree into the treehouse, so that I could be hiding in the tree uh, in order to, like, throw a water balloon or something at the neighbors, and then, like, quickly escape. And, you know, I, was, I wasn't, like, real small, but um, maybe I should have known. I don't know. But I had this scooter, right, in the garage, and I took it all apart, uh, and I, I pulled the rubber off the front wheel, and so it was just the rim, just the plastic rim, and it had, like, a groove in it. And I'm like, oh, this will be perfect. I got the handlebars to fit inside the hole in the rim, so I had handlebars with the wheel, and then I strung a rope from the tree. Down to the treehouse, and I'm like, "Here it is! This is a zipline. I've seen these on TV. It'll work, right?" Didn't work, by the way. Um, I didn't have any idea about tension. I didn't know real ziplines use steel and not just some random rope from the garage. Uh, And so it stretched all the way to the ground. I basically just jumped out of a tree um, (laughs) when I attempted the zipline. It's a wonder I didn't break more bones as a kid. And uh, as I got older, I learned more about physics, and I mostly stopped jumping off high things. But I never really stopped looking for creative ways to use things for other purposes. And this is confession time. When I wrote this, I didn't know my parents were going to be here. But <laughs> this is confession time today. Um, I think they know this. I went to church uh, with, with this, this guy who worked for the stadium that the Detroit Pistons played at. And so he had tickets all the time. And he would come in on a Sunday morning and he would give us tickets. He would come to, you know, down to the student ministry and he would give the high school kids tickets to go if there was like a matinee game, a Sunday afternoon game, he'd give us tickets. And we'd go to the games all the time And be, because, man... I'm embarrassed to tell this now. You guys, you guys are going to judge me. So we went to these games, right? And it was fun, but the Pistons weren't always, like, the best. Like, there was a period of time when they were really good, but then there was some time where they weren't. And so we needed some ways to, like, amuse ourselves at the game. And after the game, we invented, we invented this game where, you know, like, the, the parking lot of a stadium has lots of traffic cones and things, like, directing you where to go. So we invented this game where the people in the back seats of the car would roll down the windows and like hang out, lean outside the windows and try to grab traffic cones as we drove by them. The car wouldn't slow down and you'd have to grab the traffic cones and pull them into the car. And whichever person in the back seat got more traffic cones got to decide whose house we were going to go cone. We, we went coning. We invented this thing, right? And so we, we would go to somebody's house, usually somebody in the church, we would go to somebody's house and we'd run out of the car and take all the cones and fling them up on their roof of their house, like on their garage and on their house. So they come out and have like these traffic cones all over their roof, like no idea where these came from. Um, and listen, that's definitely not the way traffic cones are designed to be used, just to be flung up on people's roofs, and eventually, we got in trouble for doing that, and it was discovered uh, who it was, and we stopped playing that game. Um, I am told that those cones got returned to the stadium, that at least we gave them back to the guy at the church that worked for the stadium, so it was only borrowing, not stealing, <laughs> I hope, I'm not actually sure. Um, But listen, we've been working through uh, the book of Daniel. We've been working through these stories in the first half of the book during our counterculture series. And today we come to this story in chapter 5. And way back in chapter 1, in the very first story we looked at, we saw that God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to defeat Jerusalem. And and when he did that, the king carried off some articles from God's temple with him. Uh, and, And we now know, now in chapter five, we find out that that those articles from the temple included gold and silver goblets. Uh, So these cups, these ornate cups that were used to worship God in his temple were part of the plunder. Uh, And Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. Now in chapter five, we have a new king. Uh, His name is Belshazzar, not to be confused with Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which is very similar and not confusing at all. Uh, Belshazzar, who decides to use these cups for worship, that were designed for worship in God's temple, he decides to use them for a very different purpose. Um, And, you know, very different than the way they were supposed to be used, kind of like we did with our traffic cones. So the story starts in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to work our way through this whole chapter today, um, pieces at a time. So Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, understatement, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. That's very cartoony. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. Uh, So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you, What the writing means. So, chapter four ended with Nebuchadnezzar returning to the throne after turning back to God and getting his sanity back. But all of a sudden, in chapter five, we've moved on to a new king. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, we just move on. It's just a new story, a new king. And so, we know from history, uh, you know, from archaeology and and, and from, from studying history, that after King Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son, Amal Marduk, ruled for two years, just two years. Uh, And then uh, a king named Neraglysser ruled for four years. And then his son, Labashi-Marduk, ruled for just a few months. And so if you're doing the the math, that's about six and a half years after Nebuchadnezzar of other kings. And then came a king named Nabonidus. Uh, And and in in the historical records, Nabonidus is listed as the last king of Babylon before it's conquered by Persia. And so until recently, Belshazzar wasn't known in history. We didn't have a record of who this guy was. And people used it as a reason to to question the Bible's accuracy, Uh, that the Bible made made this mistake. It's it's, it's, an easy thing. It's just history. It's just a historical record. They should have known who was king, but they didn't, and so it must have been a mistake. Well, as things go... Uh, and and more archaeology is done, we learn more things. That's kind of how science works. We learn more things as we go. And we have since learned uh, that Belshazzar was a real person. Uh, In fact, today we have at least 37 different ancient texts that mention Belshazzar uh, as a prominent uh, leader in Babylon. And we now know that he was the son of Nabonidus. So Nabonidus is the king. Belshazzar is his son. Now, we also know that Nabonidus spent 10 years away from the city of Babylon. Uh, we don't know exactly why. There's lots of speculation, but he ruled the, the, the empire of Babylon from a different place than the, the typical capital city of, Bab- of Babylon. So while he was away for 10 years, he appointed his son to be the co-regent, to be the co-king, to be the ruler of the city. And so it's not a mistake for the Bible to call Belshazzar king. Because to the people of the city of Babylon, he absolutely was. He carried all of the authority of his father. Uh, when he's offering, uh, you know, when he's offering people the third highest position in the kingdom, uh, that would be the, the place after his father and himself. So he ac- he actually can offer that. That's in his power to grant. You know, he couldn't make them the most powerful, that's his dad, and he wasn't going to set, you know, set aside for himself. But the third highest ruler in the kingdom, uh, he can do that. And so uh, we, we also know that just a few days before this story happens, uh, the Persian king Cyrus had defeated Nabonidus. Belshazzar's father, the king, had defeated him in battle uh, out on a battlefield about 50 miles away from this city. And so the Persian empire is knocking on the door. The Persian Empire is threatening the Babylonian Empire actively right in this moment. And in this moment, Belshazzar throws this huge banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And I don't know, it's just speculation, but it seems like maybe he's trying to consolidate power or maybe he's trying to rally the troops. or I, I don't know, but something like that. Uh, you know, His father is away and so he's trying to, to, to rally the city of Babylon to be ready. And in the middle of this party, The king decided to bring in the goblets that were from God's temple in Jerusalem and use them like red solo cups at a a party. And it's not like the king ran out of cups, right? It's not like he had this party and he just didn't bring enough cups. Um, He he chose to do this on purpose. Daniel actually points this out later in the chapter, that he chose to do this on purpose. He, He goes farther in his pride than Nebuchadnezzar ever went. I mean, just in the last chapter, we saw God deal with Nebuchadnezzar's pride, um, but, but Belshazzar worshipped idols while he was drinking from cups that were intended to be used to worship God. And while they drank wine from the gold and silver goblets, it says that they praised their gods of gold and silver. Their gods are made out of the same stuff that the cups were made out of, that they were drinking, and it's ironic and, and weird. And we saw God deal with this. We saw God deal with with Nebuchadnezzar's idol worship when he made the the big weird proportion statue uh, and God saved Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the furnace. And we saw God deal with the king's pride uh, just one chapter before this by by taking away his sanity uh, for for seven years until he finally turned back to God for help. And Belshazzar is guilty of both of those things. He's guilty of pride and he's guilty of worshiping idols. Um, But we've already seen these two things. He's guilty of something new. There's something new now that, that Belshazzar brings into the equation, uh, and it's blasphemy. This is, this is new in the, in the Daniel stories. He's just as arrogant as his father, Nebuchadnezzar, which, by the way, um, we know from history, it's not his biological father, uh, but father is typically used also in royal lineage of, of like your predecessor, and so the one who went before, uh, and so claiming that title isn't, you know inaccurate necessarily. It's just he's trying to claim a connection to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh and so his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, but he takes this time this this one to a new level. He expresses his superiority not by taking pride in his own accomplishments like what Nebuchadnezzar did, but he expresses his superiority by taking things that belong to God as holy and using them in a common way. That's blasphemy. It, it's dishonoring God with our speech or our actions. And that's the simplest definition of it. And Belshazzar does both of those things in this story. These goblets, these cups were reserved for a specific use. They they were to be used in worshiping God at the temple. They weren't to be used for drinking wine at state banquets in Babylon. And throughout the Bible, God claims certain things as holy, that, that, that they are set apart for him alone. They are set apart to be used only this way. And using something that God sets apart as holy for some other purpose was really serious. Um, in, In Israel's law, it carried the death penalty. Using something that God set apart as holy was a serious sin. Numbers 15 says that blasphemy, when it's talking about what blasphemy is, it says that blasphemy is not something that happens by accident. Right? Sometimes, remember in the New Testament where we're, we're told not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and we don't exactly know what that means. We, we kind of guess at what it means, but we're always worried that like, did I do it on accident? Number 15 says blasphemy doesn't happen on accident. That blasphemy is when we defiantly sin by, by saying and doing things that curse God and insult God and oppose God. And so, like, we tend to think of things today, as, you know, blasphemy, we tend to th- think of things like vandalizing a church or uh, burning a cross, uh, that, that those things are blasphemy, those are blasphemous things. But listen, churches are just buildings. Now, I'd rather nobody vandalize our, bu- our church building, but churches are just buildings. Crosses are just symbols. They're, they're not magical. They're, they're not uh, set apart as holy, not, not in the same way that the goblets are to God, God doesn't call us to do that anymore. He doesn't call us to set aside special cups for worship in his temple uh, like he did in the Old Testament. Um, And he doesn't, and that's for a simple reason. It's because the New Testament says that we are the temple of God, that that God's people are his temple. Um, So God doesn't have a temple the way he did at Jerusalem. You don't have that just that one holy place where you're supposed to go to to worship. Um, You can worship anywhere. You can worship in this room. You can worship in your living room. You can worship outside. You can worship inside. We can worship anywhere. It's not just this one special place where we can worship. The curtain, remember, was torn in two. We have access to God wherever we are. Um, And and the Bible calls you and I God's house for worship, The, the place where God's presence, the place where his Holy Spirit lives. And so blasphemy today Which, remember, blasphemy is abusing something that God has set apart as holy, something that God claims as his own. Blasphemy today mainly deals with people, not with special cups or some special holy object. It's people. We are the thing that God has set apart as holy. We are the thing that God claims as his own. We are the temple articles. We are the special cups. We are the thing. And so we commit the same sin as Belshazzar when we refuse to see God's image in ourselves. When we treat others, uh, when, when, when we treat other people as anything less than God's children, that's Blasphemy, in a sense, when, when, when we are treating other people that God has made, people who are God's children, people who, uh, who, who have God's spirit living inside them, when we treat them poorly, we are tiptoeing closer and closer to this sin of blasphemy. And as we see in this story, God takes this sin very seriously. He doesn't waste any time responding to Belshazzar's blasphemy. He takes these cups and God's there. God's there with his response. And his response is alarming. (laughs) These fingers of this human hand like appear and start writing on the wall uh, near the lampstand so nobody can miss it. It's not off in the shadows, right? It's right in the spotlight uh, and everybody can see what's happening and the king freaked out. Like it described me as like his knees are knocking and he went pale and he called for the wise men of the kingdom. of. I don't know when they're going to learn that these wise men are totally incompetent and they never help, but he called for the wise men again and, uh, and they didn't help. They're never any help. And the, king, the queen, I'm sorry, reminds him uh, about Daniel, uh, who was about 80 years old by this time, by the way. I, we we uh, don't always do a great job when we tell these stories to kids of tracking Daniel's age through these stories. Um, by now, we know through how long Nebuchadnezzar ruled and when the exile was through lots of history. We know that Daniel was in his 80s uh, by the time of this story. Um, and, and so he probably took on some sort of background role in the government uh, after Nebuchadnezzar died. Um, that, that could explain why Belshazzar doesn't think of him right away, that he, he was kind of maybe semi, semi-retired or something. But he comes back, whatever the case. Uh, he comes back to interpret a message for a new king again. And, uh, and here's, here's how it goes. This starts in verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel? one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride... He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Belshazzar reminds Daniel that he's a captive, like Daniel forgot, right? Reminds him that he's a captive. He interrogates him like he's a prisoner. Even though he, he knew full well the role that Daniel played with King Nebuchadnezzar. And if he didn't, the queen just reminded him, remember? So this king's pride is even worse than Nebuchadnezzar's pride. As Daniel goes on to explain what's happening, he, he, he says at least Nebuchadnezzar had a basis for pride right? He could say, you know, you're promoted and you're promoted and, and, or he could say, nope, you're, you know, you get the death penalty and that's what happened. But, you know, this guy isn't even the, the, the main king in all the land. You know, his dad is the king. So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar at least had a, a basis for pride in his accomplishments. He had real power over people, but, but Belshazzar's just showing off at a party. And if God can humble a king like Nebuchadnezzar, a real king, a king with real power, imagine what he can do with a king like Belshazzar. Daniel's point is that he should have known better. He knew what he was supposed to do, but he chose pride and idolatry and blasphemy. He chose something else. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance to repent, but Belshazzar, Daniel says, should have already known how to live from Nebuchadnezzar's story. He should have known. He should have learned from the king's experience with God, but instead he deliberately defied God. See, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance. He gave him a chance to change, and then he gave him a chance to repent. But Belshazzar doesn't get any chances. And we wonder why. It seems really random and arbitrary, right? Why would God give Nebuchadnezzar a chance and not Belshazzar a chance? But this story seems to say it's because he should have known better. And today, we're a lot better informed than Belshazzar was about who God is, about what's important to God. Um, We've been warned. We've been given clear directions about the way God wants his people to live. God himself has given the people of the world a direct message through his word. We, We have the word of God. Romans 1 says that what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it Plain to them. They they can read all about him. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. If Belshazzar had no excuse for his blasphemy and his pride and his idolatry, then neither do we. If Belshazzar should have known better, so should we we should know better. We have God's word. But but so many times, instead of using God's word to discover what God wants from us or to, to change our lives in order to fit God's way, so many times we use God's word to find these verses and these ideas out of context to support our opinions and our positions and, and we use it to, to make memes as weapons to, to fight against anyone who might disagree with us. And listen, I, I would compare the way that we sometimes use God's word, the way we misuse God's word in the world today, I would compare that with the way Belshazzar misuses these temple goblets. Because he takes something that God has set apart as holy, something that God gave to his people to be used in worship, And he mocks God by using it selfishly, by using it for his own purposes, by using it to worship his own gods. And I have to ask, is our reckless abuse of the Bible to suit our own needs any different than that? I once, saw, I once saw a sermon that's always stuck with me where uh, we were, he was taught, the, the preacher was talking about this, about the ways we abuse and mistreat the Bible. And he had a Bible on stage with him and he just started ripping things out that he didn't like. He's like, oh, we don't like this. Get rid of that. Rip out a whole page. We don't like that story. We don't like what Jesus is trying to teach us with that. And that's like, how could you do that? That's offensive. Well, yes, it is, isn't it? But that's what we're doing when we're just picking and choosing. I like that part in the Bible. Nah, nah, that's, I, can't, I can't do that. With this, God's given us his word. He's told us how to live. And, and, and when we trample on his word, it's blasphemy. It's the same thing that Belshazzar was doing. God gave him Nebuchadnezzar's story to learn from. And God gave us a whole book filled with stories to learn from. The Bible is there for us to know God better, to know the way God wants us to live. It's not here for us to just use it to support our own agendas and to advance our own causes. The Bible is here for us to honor and worship God, not for us to beat others into submission. Okay, rant over. Let's keep going in the story. Daniel chapter five, verse 24. Let's finish it. Therefore, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is, what, this is the inscription that was written. Meenie, meenie, tekel, parson. And here's what these words mean, conveniently. Thank you, God, for the meaning right away. Uh, Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, which is the singular of parson, by the way. It's not a different word. It's just singular form, plural form. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So the writing on the wall is three different nouns. Meany, meany, tekel, parson. The first one's Repeated. For emphasis, when the Bible repeats something, it's for emphasis typically. And as nouns, these words are units of money. Uh, And so the phrase literally reads, mina, mina, shekel and a half. Um, It's it's a phrase of money, uh, which, again, wouldn't make a ton of sense until there's someone to interpret it. Um, Daniel's interpretation takes the nouns and makes them verbs. Numbered, weighed, divided. Belshazzar and the Babylonians have not measured up to God's standard, Uh, even though he gave them Daniel to explain his message, uh, plenty of chances to obey him and change, Uh, they haven't, they didn't, and so now God is going to allow another power to come to the throne, a new empire to come and take over. And the king acknowledges that Daniel's interpretation is true, uh, because he gives them all the stuff he promised. He gives him uh, the reward, not that it really matters because in a few hours the, the king doesn't have anything to give anyway. Uh, it's, you know, what good is it going to be for Daniel to be the third highest ruler in the Babylonian Empire when there is no Babylonian Empire anymore? And this story lines up again with what we know from history, that the city of Babylon fell at night during a banquet in a surprise attack from the Persian Empire. We actually even know the exact date, on October 12th, 539 B.C., and so this is attested in history that this event happened. And in this case, God's judgment happened immediately. God didn't give chances. God didn't give him a year like he gave Nebuchadnezzar. It was that night. And the Bible is clear that God judges We don't like that, but the Bible is clear that God judges. He judges evil. He condemns the wicked. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Uh, There there are plenty of passages in the New New Testament uh, that point out that God still judges evil. He still holds us accountable for our sins. And the Bible is also clear that judging evil in the world is God's role and not our role. In in Romans 2, it says, You, therefore, all of us, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? And in Matthew 7, Jesus tells us, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whoa. The Bible warns us not to set ourselves up above other people to decide whether or not they're guilty of sin. That is God's role, not ours. So real disciples show mercy to other people because that's the way God has treated us. God shows mercy to me. I show mercy To you. Can you honestly say that you want God to judge you in the same way you judge other people? Because I can't. I for sure don't want God to judge me the way I sometimes struggle and judge other people, even if I don't mean to, even if it just kind of snaps and happens accidentally. I do not want God to judge me by my standards. When we judge other people, we're making ourselves, our opinions, our way of doing things, we're making that the standard. That's the thing that everyone has to live up to. They have to live up to my way. And man, when we do that, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We are taking a role that is God's alone and we're saying, no, I can do that better. And God hasn't responded super favorably to those kinds of attitudes in, in these stories. And Daniel, the only time throughout the whole Bible that we're actually asked to judge others is in the church, not outside of the church, God will judge the people outside of the faith, people like this king, like Belshazzar. God will hold them accountable for their choices, for their actions. We're called to show them love as we share the message of God's grace with them and and as we hope that they will turn to God and turn away from sin like Nebuchadnezzar did. Daniel hoped that Nebuchadnezzar would choose God. He didn't know if he would or not, but Daniel's job was just to faithfully deliver the message and, and, and pray for him and hope that he would choose God. But when it comes to people inside the church, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And we're like, that's right. We don't want to be around those people. And then Paul says, not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world He's saying, if you refuse to associate with sinners, you won't be around anybody. He says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Remember the family language we talked about last month about, about in the church. Anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer a drunkard or swindler, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And that seems really harsh. I understand that that sounds really harsh. But listen, we get this so backwards. We're so backwards on this. We've become so used to just ignoring our own sins or or justifying uh, what we do and explaining it away. We're we're so used to just kind of like turning the other way when it's somebody we know in the church, like, oh, well, it's probably not that bad. And then we just go after, like as hard as we can, we go after the sins of the people in the world and, oh, they're terrible, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we judge and we judge and we judge. But the church's jurisdiction is restricted to our own, people. God will take care of the sins of the world. We're called to show the world how to live for God, not to try to impose what we think God's standard of living is on the world around us. God has never called us to go out and impose a Christian nation on the world. That is not our call. God will judge the sins of the world, but we are called to hold one another accountable in the church we who have made a commitment to follow God, we, the people the people of the book, the people of the word, the people who should know better, we're called to help one another, to, to hold each other accountable so that we don't fall into sin like Belshazzar fell into sin, so that we don't fall under God's judgment in the same way. So we've got to stop being so backwards on this. We, we've got to stop trying to distance ourselves from non-Christians who are sinning you know, and, and, and move, we've got to have to stop moving away from them while we're ignoring the unrepentant sins in our own lives and in the lives of other believers. We've got to stop that. We've got to get this stuff right. Because Daniel understood this. Daniel understood that judgment is God's job. And Daniel shows that living for God in a culture that isn't living for God means being willing to call sin sin. I mean, Daniel didn't shy away from this stuff. But listen, he he also wasn't running around beating people up with the Bible. I mean, he didn't have the Bible, but beating people up with God's word, God's messages, right? He, he waited to be asked to, to come in and make this interpretation. Um, now, he was honest, he was bold, he was clear and courageous, uh, and, and, and he called sin, sin. And, and, and living for God in a culture that isn't means learning from what God has done in the past uh, so we don't repeat the same mistakes over and over again, um, you know, being in the Bible, And it means living my life the way God's called me to live and letting God judge other people um, instead of spending all of my time judging other people. Living in a culture that's hostile to God means immersing myself in God's word so I can live God's way. And it means sharing the truth of God's word with the world around us without passing judgment on the way they've been living. Let's pray. God, these stories they seem so distant from us but at the same time they they really challenge us and father a story like this that's that, you know that doesn't have this happy ending it doesn't it doesn't have the happy ending that we want to see where uh, the sinner turns back to you and repents but but in this story it, it, the ending is judgment not repentance the ending is uh, the end, the ending is is your judgment carried out on on someone who refused to repent and so, God, my prayer this morning is that we would not be like Belshazzar, that, that we would not refuse to repent, that we would not get so sucked in to, to judging and judging and judging all the, the bad things that are happening in the world around us, and instead focus on living and living and living for you. Uh, Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, uh, and for the communion that we are about to celebrate uh, in his honor. It's in his name. So with Nebuchadnezzar, God showed how he's able to overcome the pride of a powerful ruler by humbling him into repentance. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's pride triggered this uh, humbling response that eventually uh, led him to turn back to God. But with Belshazzar, God shows what he does with a person who refuses to repent. And either way, God shows that he's more powerful than the leader's, in our world that seem uh, to hold our lives in their hands. They seem to be so, so powerful. And that's what happens at the cross too. God shows that he is more powerful than the leaders of the world. The leaders of the Jews and the Romans thought that they were exercising their power over Jesus by sentencing him to death until God used it to forgive our sins and to conquer death once and for all. And so we take communion every week Uh, to remember all that the cross means to us, and as a reminder to repent of our sins and turn back to God. So when the tray passes by this morning, go ahead and take a set of cups and hold on to them uh, until we can take communion together. His body given for us, and his blood poured out for our sins. Amen. So this week, get into God's word. I mean, really, that's the bottom line as I went through this story Get into these stories, get into this word, not for ammunition to judge other people, not looking for bullets for your gun, but for truth for you to live by. And so don't forget, uh, we mentioned last week that there is a, a congregational vote today right after our service uh, to affirm uh, the elders and the chairman, the vice chairman, and the treasurer of our, our congregation uh, for this next term, for this next, uh, this next period of time. And so we're going to do that uh, just right after service this morning. If you'd like to stay and vote, it'll be very quick. Um, And we're going to sing a song together and then be dismissed. And then after we're dismissed, uh, you can either just hang out or come on back in and we'll do a quick vote.